Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, I sit down with Peter, who is lead developer on the Go Ethereum client. We talk about his path into Ethereum as well as give some advice to people who might want to become core developers themselves. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank our sponsor of this episode, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits is a security company that has done a lot of work in the blockchain space. If you ever wondered how to increase your security, go check out their latest blog post on rules for the secure use of cryptocurrency hardware wallets. It's chock full of great advice on how to keep your money safe. Just head over to blog.trailabits.com to check it out. You can also find a link in the description below. I'm sitting with Peter Shilagi, if I pronounce that correctly. Um, almost. <laughs> almost. Um, from the Geth team. Super happy to have you. I've been pinging you on Twitter, trying to get you on the podcast for a while. Um, and for the listener, the context of this podcast is we want, or I want to sit down with developers and figure out, you know, what is a blockchain developer? What's the difference to adapt developer? I get a lot of these questions and I want to dig into like your background a little bit and how you got started in programming uh, and, and ask you some of these questions about being a core developer. So maybe before we start, can you just talk one sentence introduction on like who you are and what you work on? Yep. Uh, so first of all, thank you very much for having me, uh, even though I actively ignored you on Twitter. <laughs> so as for myself, um, my name is Peter, and um, I'm um, currently the lead developer on the Go Ethereum team. So essentially, we're trying to keep Ethereum mainnet alive while the research team is trying to dream up the next version so in short that's me cool so how did you get started in programming Ooh, that was uh, essentially up until eighth grade i was a couch potato i really loved to watch cartoons and all of a sudden they changed the language of the cartoons from english to some the local language so i figured that okay that's not going to fly so i need to find a better hobby and the next hobby was, ooh, let's write computer programs. And then I got just, uh, originally I thought it would be funny to write them. I, most of my mother helped me. And then I just got hooked and I ended up writing games, obviously, as a kid. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, a lot of people get into programming from games. Like it's sort of the other way around. They play games and then you kind of get bored with the games and you, okay, what, what else can I do with this computer? Uh, but you're like the opposite direction almost. Yeah, so I, I kind of got hooked into programming first, and then I realized that just writing programs is boring, so I need something visual. And that's why I started doing uh, 3D graphics, and that was really, really nice. And I kept doing that up until I actually reached a point where I my GPU wasn't powerful enough to do shaders. So I, I it was just annoying that I can't do what I like to do. And then for some reason, I deflected and started doing networking because right. I could do that over the internet. Yeah. And you mentioned your mother was helping you. Is she computer scientist as well or? Um, both my parents have 
I'm, I wouldn't call them computer scientists, but yes, uh, computer related. So going from gaming to networking, I mean, from networking to blockchains, maybe not, not that big of a leap, but how did you get involved in the blockchain space? I always, so um, basically I started network, playing around with networking in high school. And then uh, when I was doing my university studies, uh, my master's, my uh, uh, PhD, which unfortunately I did never complete, uh, those were all around uh, networking. Originally, uh, my master's was around um, this cloud computing and uh, hosting platforms, application hosting platforms. And I dreamed up this really awesome platform that could self-deploy and self-do everything, except it was really, really messy to do the distributed self-organization part. So I couldn't get the system to self-organize itself, and I really hated configurations. So with my PhD, I, I dreamed up a system where I can just have a decentralized, no central point of configuration, and just have it uh, find the peers and do something useful together. And, uh, and I tried to create a messaging system on top of that. And from there, the leap was that uh, actually the Ethereum Foundation had this dream of Whisper, and they contacted me whether I would like to work on Whisper. Or whether I actually, they contacted me whether I would like to rewrite my entire PhD on top of Ethereum. So I read the Ethereum ideas and I said that these suck and I don't want to do anything with you guys. So uh, that's not where we are today. So <laughs> <laughs> in the end, uh, this was in, I don't know, 2014. And I, that was the time actually the, I had two more months to finish my PhD. So somebody random Joe reached out to me whether I want to rewrite my PhD. Obviously, the answer was no. And uh, maybe about a year later, I started to actually seriously dig into. I remember that I got that email from some random guy and I started lo reading into it and look it, look it back up, try to see what this thing was. And then I got a bit more interested in. Do you remember who it was that first reached out to you? Uh, no, I, the first person, no, I think it was just an outreach person. Uh, I know that I asked some questions to which Vitalik actually answered, but he didn't bother to answer my follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where the interaction stopped originally. Didn't even realize that the foundation had an outreach person or department. Uh, but it makes sense, I guess, to attract developers early on, especially. Well, this was before before the white paper appeared essentially. So they, I think the, the outreach was rather, they had a small group of people who were trying to reach out to developers working in a decentralized space and just try to figure out what they need. So I'm guessing they wanted to see what Ethereum should become. So you got involved. How long did you work on Whisper, if, if at all? I assume you ended up working on it. <laughs> and then where did like Go Ethereum become a thing and, and how did you get into where you are there? Well, Whisper was always uh, part of the Go Ethereum code base, and I uh, I got hired to do that. Essentially, I got hired to implement Whisper 2.0, which was really fun, especially when it turned out that there's no spec to for Whisper 2.0, just these random ideas. And then I tried to do my best just to rewrite the Whisper code. I think I ended up rewriting the entire code to do whatever I thought would be the best, and from there kind of got obvious that, okay, Whisper 2.0 is done. It does something, whether that's useful or not is irrelevant, but there was no further plans. And then I started uh, poking into Go Ethereum and seeing what, what else can I do. And, uh, 
And that's how I started actually contributing something more meaningful to the GoEthereum codebase. So the GoEthereum codebase already existed when you joined. And then what was the path from there to being the lead dev on it? Yeah, so I joined in 2015, April. So that's two, three and a half years ago, I guess. Um, and the GoEthereum project was started in sometime maybe August 2014. So there was about an eight month already being developed. So one of one of my main, I would say, I, I don't know whether it's a strength or weakness. I really, really hate it when something doesn't work properly or what if, if something is ugly. And I somehow I feel compelled to fix it or to clean it up. And I guess when I saw the Goethem codebase, originally it was a prototype, obviously. So it has really a lot, it had a lot of rough edges. And I somehow took it as a mission for myself to clean that up. And I started just rewriting all kinds of parts, starting trying to understand and trying to poke every part of it. And then eventually, eventually I started contributing to all the parts. And I guess after a while, when um, I guess it's important to know that uh, the original implementer, the original person who started the Goethean project was Jeffrey Wilke. And he was the team lead, team lead developer, etc. For, for a very long time. But uh, in about I think 2017, January, he kind of decided that he wants to step down. He had some health issues. He wasn't really sure what... Yeah, he, I think, long story short, he kind of burned out. And he wanted to, wanted to step down for a bit, at least. And uh, he wanted to find somebody else to take care of the project. As for why he chose me, that was his decision. And I really, really didn't want to accept doing this. but. Um, he said that somebody needs to do it, so I was that somebody for the time being. Going into this idea of you know what it is to be a blockchain developer, what it takes, what do you see that a blockchain developer is, and what do you need to like think about as a blockchain developer? One of the really annoying parts, so to say, of being a blockchain developer that's kind of unique to blockchains is that you need to create a uh, this a uh, program that's run by people all over the world. And if that program has any sort of issues, bugs, uh, you cannot just fix it. So opposed to the cloud computing world where you just, hey, here's a bug, let's get up at 3 a.m. in the morning, fix it, redeploy it, and uh, we can go back to bed at 4 a.m. With blockchains, yes, I can get up at 3 a.m., fix it, but then I have to convince uh, 5,000 people to update their nodes, which will take two weeks. And so this is a really, really hard challenge that Every time you modify the code, every time you do anything, you always have that little red flag that, are you sure that this won't blow up? And how do you handle if it, if it does? And we had, of course, uh, for example, the Shanghai attacks, where it was uh, really, really painfully obvious that it's, uh, it's very hard and you cannot just do cowboy coding and then hope that everything goes right. So I guess that's, uh, to answer the question short, I think the, being a blockchain dev, the most challenging part is to actually um, move forward, to be able to move forward in such a way that you are more or less confident that you're not breaking anything. And uh, especially with, uh, before Frontier or before Ethereum was particularly valuable, so to say, we could have, even though we always strived not to break things, it wasn't too big of a problem if we broke it because Ethereum was just this quirky thing, quirky blockchain. 
that that did have some value, but it didn't have specifically a lot of value. But as the as the e- whole ecosystem gets more and more valuable and more and more people rely on it, it's just a lot more pressure on blockchain developers not to screw up. So with that in mind, for someone sort of entering this space or for someone, or just generally like the, the people that you've worked with and that you see working with, um, what type of person succeeds in this space? You said you sort of have to be security minded or like cautious. And obviously you don't want to, you know, if you're completely risk averse, you wouldn't get into blockchain at all. So there's there has to be like some type of person that succeeds in this space and does very well, and some people that seems to have the right properties but don't. I guess the question is a bit complex because what do you mean succeeds in this space? I mean succeeds as in uh, successfully contributes code <laughs> in a meaningful oh, okay. way. <laughs> <laughs> For that, I still think it's uh, being risk averse and um, and thorough are the two most important aspects. So I don't think. I don't think being risk averse is a negative aspect. It's actually, in my opinion, one of the most positive aspects because being risk averse. So, by risk averse, I'm not meaning uh, that you don't dare make modifications. Rather, by being risk averse, I'm I mean that you you are fully aware of the implications, and that makes you actually be thorough, write the tests, and actually try to, for example, if you're touching networking layer, then try to break it yourself to see whether you can actually come up with attack scenarios that break your own code. So from that, that's what I understand by being risk averse. So from this perspective, I think that's a positive. If you're so risk averse that you don't dare make changes, that's probably a negative thing already. When it comes to blockchains, and like you said, a big part of our jobs as mainnets, sort of maintainers, is just keeping the thing alive. State keeps growing, things get keep getting like bigger. There's obviously a performance aspect here. Do you take that into account when you like look at contributors? It's like this person clearly knows what the performance is about. They they know what their code affects, or is performance, you know, does the security aspect trump performance, or do you need to like have both? Yeah, so contribution wise, there's um, there are usually uh, one of the biggest issues that I personally see when people outsiders try to cont- contribute to Go Ethereum is that obviously the reason why people contribute to Go Ethereum, at least the most people, is because they they have a pain point that they want to solve, and that means that they uh, yeah they take the time they try to um, research the code they try to figure out how best to solve it and then they introduce a tiny fix which is maybe good, maybe not so good, but they, they solve their own pain point. And the problem with outside contributions usually is that outside people don't have the entire full picture, and then they many times accidentally break stuff that, uh, or actually accidentally break an invariant of the system. And we yes, we could consider security or performance as such an invariant. I'm... Just for ex- just to give you an example, uh, somebody approached me here in DEFCON that they would really like to have... Um, um, so Parity has this proof of authority consensus engine where you can have a contract that's directing, uh, that's controlling who can and who cannot sign. And they, want, they were asking whether we could add a similar thing to, to Geth because it's in theory fairly simple. 
And it's really interesting that they, for example, didn't realize that uh, if it's fully contract-based and it's a contract controls the signers, then it means that the contract, you can only, in order to know who is allowed to sign or who is not allowed to sign, you need to have access to the state. So all of a sudden, if you're not a full node processing the transactions, then it's a problem. And of course, these are all things that can be solved. It's just an example that uh, when an outsider tries to contribute, there are these tiny things that might make a contribution a lot less valuable, even though the, the idea is very good. And um, these are usually our biggest challenges with accepting outside contributions, that it usually takes a lot of time to figure out whether does it surely not ruin anything, or, or does it accidentally maybe poke a hole on, um, on some security, on some performance? And just to answer another question that you had is, I guess, performance versus security. I think up until I joined Ethereum, I, I was convinced that security is the most important thing. But uh, since now that we have to maintain mainnet, I would say that, yeah, security and performance go hand in hand. Hand in hand. So you, c you can't really pick one over the other. You have to actually optimize for both. So on that note of uh, what you optimize for and, like you said, what, what you include or don't include, how do you see the work split on that sort of protocol design level versus implementation level? Is there a difference in your mind? Is there like, oh, we need to write this EIP and find a spec and de fully define the protocol and then we can write some code? Or do you see those two things go hand in hand more or less as well? Yeah, so this is an interesting thing. Uh, I'm not entirely sure who I had a discussion with here again in DEF CON, but in the discussion kind of uh, revolved around R&D. So basically, uh, if you want to create um, a new specification, you kind of have to have two steps. One of them is researching and dreaming up the specification, and the second one is actually implementing it, at least in a prototype phase. And I think when, after you have the research and the prototype implementation both done, only then can you actually create a spec that can be implemented into a production system. And I think the Ethereum ecosystem currently is uh, seriously lacking this, uh, this second development step where the research team works together with the developer team to, to create a solid spec that, that can be then deployed in production. Because in theory, yes, uh, we could say that while well, we have a research team that creates a dream or creates an approximate spec and then we, the client developers, just implement it and iron out the issues. But usually the problem is that this is a really, really iterative process. You go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And if a client developer has to maintain mainnet and has to keep mainnet alive, then we might not have the capacity to go back and forth and back and forth. And going back and forth and back and forth also entails uh, implementing it into the production-ready code, which is usually a bad idea. There's also... I mean, we keep making protocol changes to the existing protocol and uh, the foundation research team is not particularly involved with that, nor nor should they necessarily be. A lot of these protocol changes, like uh, we need another pre-compile to support this use case, comes in. But I'm just curious of like, in your mindset, is are these two things separate and are, are they always separate or yeah? I guess there are two two things that we we need to talk about here. One of them is, uh, so the goal of Ethereum is to support dApps. So from one perspective, 
we need to implement extra opcodes or extra precompiles that support whatever use case the community dreams up. And for that, that part, I think, uh, we as client devs have much less useful information to contribute because we maintain the core client, but I'm not implementing a fancy DAP on top. So I don't really know what exactly what pain points fancy DAP developers have. So if fancy DAP developers require some specific opcodes, then they need to be the ones who bring it to the table. So from that perspective, certain extensions need to, or certain protocol changes, consensus changes need to come from the community. From another perspective, I think, uh, for example, if we talk about how can we synchronize Ethereum or, or how can we make block propagation, block processing faster, those are changes where I think the client developers who are actually maintaining mainnet, they need to be the ones who propose it because they are the ones who actually feel it and know that, okay, the current try representation is really horrible because, and what can we do about it, or what kind of properties do you do we want to achieve? So I think evolving the Ethereum consensus protocol probably needs to be directed from two separate fronts. Speaking about that aspect of what you think about and what you work on, what is your average day-to-day like? My average day-to-day? So usually when I... Start my day, I always check whether Rinkaby is still alive or not, <laughs> which yeah. uh, generally it is alive, but uh, the faucet might be down or not. Some signer might be offline or not. So usually those are the, the things that I always check. And the reason why that's kind of important is because, um, so Rinkaby is just a testnet. So from, one, from this perspective, one might think that, well, it's a testnet. If it goes offline, nobody cares. But the really important, really huge value from my perspective in the testnet is that since it's a purely Go Ethereum testnet, it means that uh, if we have a bug, then it's it's really obvious on the testnet. So you can, if the testnet misbehaves, then you know that Go Ethereum has a bug. Whereas if mainnet misbehaves, you always have a question mark that, okay, are we doing something stupid or is some other client doing something weird? So there's, it's always harder, to, it's always easy to blame someone else. But if you have a, a pure single client testnet, then there's nobody else to blame, which means if you see an anomaly, it's up to you to fix it. So usually that's one of my personally most important sources of information on, on what to do. But after that, I always usually go through the, any issues reported, try to reply to them, um, maybe look through any old, freshly opened pull requests. If it's something really trivial, just quickly merge to get rid of it. And then, um, yeah, just dive in, have our, da- have our daily stand-up and try to figure out what to do next. Can you actually review all of the comments that you're mentioned in? I, I know Merrick, uh, who's one of the main writers of the uh, Parity Ethereum code base, he ran into it. Like he, he tried to review everything that he was mentioned in. And it got to a point where that took up like 75% of his day and then he couldn't actually get anything done in a day because all he was doing was reviewing comments and like stuff he was mentioned in. Yeah, so that's that's actually, um, I think in the, the development of Go Ethereum, at least the obviously the number one bottleneck is review, code review. So we had this way back when Jeff was still on the team, we had this uh, rule set up that every pull request needs to be reviewed by at least two core maintainers. Back then, that meant Jeff, Felix, uh, and myself. 
or maybe one of us and maybe somebody else too from the team. Then Jeff left, which meant uh, that Felix and me needed to review every pull request. So that's, that, that didn't really scale. And um, we, we still kind of have that same issue that it's really, really hard to review pull requests. And really, really often somebody has a very good intention and submits a pull request and you just look at it and you know that it is a good intention and it will take an enormous amount of time to review. And those are the, the worst feelings that you know you won't be able to review it. And then what do you do? Yeah, we have that uh, a bit every once in a while as well, where someone submits a PR. It's clearly like it's a valuable thing. The thing that they, like you said, it's a good intention. I believe in what they're trying to do. It's just the wrong way to do it. And to get this PR merged, I know how much mentoring is on that path. And it's sort of like, it's really hard to get time to do that mentoring. It would be a lot faster for us to just implement it ourselves. But on the other hand, we want to include people. We want to mentor people. We want to get people, more people into the code base. So that's a, a tough trade-off there. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Usually, usually the most valuable contributions we get are from... Um, so there are a few bigger players in the, in the ecosystem, kind of like Infura, for example... And they they have a lot easier job to contribute because uh, they can usually they don't just want some random feature. They can always explicitly state that we want this thing implemented because this is the problem because we tried it out on our infrastructure and it solves it. And that's usually that's an easy way. Those are the easy fixes. Maybe it needs a bit of meshing, but uh, but those are easy. But as you also said, we we also would really like to have more and more outside contributions. I'm just not entirely sure how we as a team can um, can keep up the security and the performance while also... Um, so I guess we need to... There are a few features that we need to do to maintain the client and the mainnet. We, need, we have a few features that usually the foundation would like to have implemented maybe for a hard fork, maybe for Ethereum 2.0. And then we have these... Um, external little niceties that the community would like to have implemented and uh, we don't have time for either of the three fully so trying to do all three is uh, fun <laughs> yeah you come from a somewhat academic background yourself trying at least to get a phd and uh, you know you've like you said you studied networking and gotten into the space through that I see a lot of people coming into this space without any academic background and they're sort of just trying stuff out. But there's also this completely different side where some teams are 100% academic and they're you know, publishing research papers on what they want to build and, and like, especially like in the consensus space. But do you see that crossover between academia and like practical engineering being important or do you see it increasing or decreasing mm, so in all honesty i don't really consider myself an academic or coming from academia so the reason i did my master's and i started doing my phd is because i had a lot of time to do something more interesting <laughs> <laughs> so i i really liked i was i always considered myself a developer and um, and being at the university gave me a lot of time to experiment with new technology and try to dream up new technologies but it wasn't really a, I wouldn't, wouldn't say it's academic. So getting into this space, I think if you're um, a developer, then you have a much easier path into this space than if you're an academic. 
And I kind of emphasize that because even now, even if the Ethereum Foundation research team and Ethereum 2.0 or Serenity sharding, uh, uh, sharding research, you can very often see that there are really elegant designs. But when you try to figure out, okay, how can you implement that? It turns out that it, they make a certain assumptions about the network, like zero latency, which is for a developer, it's kind of obvious that, wait, 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 that's, there's a problem there. But if you have purely an academic background, then it might not be that obvious. And then you have these little friction points. So I think it's, um, at least as a platform blockchain developer, being a developer is much more helpful than being a purely academic. But of course, uh, obviously, a simple developer, so to say, won't dream up a new consensus engine or a new proof of stake thing. So that's, those people are important too. Do you find it valuable to try to attract more people from academic fields like database engineering or networking or those fields? Or are those things like solved problems that we can just kind of use as base assumptions? Mm, I th yeah, so this is, uh, this is where my, the, perhaps I'm going to speak against the programmers that um, being so... Since I stayed a bit more at the university, I kind of had a bit more time and I was a bit more forced to to read up on uh, on maybe some papers and to read up into more exotic uh, technologies or not necessarily technologies, rather uh, ideas, research ideas. And uh, I think those are kind of things that would be important for, for average developers. Now. For example, queuing theory, message passing, uh, communicating sequential processes. These are... If you're a Go developer or an Erlang developer, then you know these because these languages are all based on it. But if you come from another language, then you have a fairly high chance to not be familiar with these. Or if you see these, it might look a bit, uh, bit weird at the first glance, a bit non, not unnatural. But these are extremely valuable ideas. And I think it's, it, you really want to get these ideas into the Ethereum ecosystem too, or in general into any blockchain ecosystem. Because when we, when we try to do cross, kind of cross shard communication or any form of communication between smart contracts, those are just, um, a bit quirky variant of the problem that people have been trying to solve for the past 20 years with uh, microservices and uh, cloud computing and uh, distributed systems. So it's not anything particular, particularly new. So I think, uh, yes, it is important to bring academics or rather i would say that it's important to to have the people who work on the base protocols and to people who are trying to architect the system it's important for them to have the, the have knowledge about the past 30 years of research that happened in this space be that database design or uh, or whatever and uh, people i kind of uh, one thing that i that i always find odd or or surprising is that people always assume that, well, databases are solved, we'll just use LevelDB or PostgreSQL or MySQL or whatever other database or RocksDB. And if one doesn't perform well, we'll just throw it out and pull in the next one and boom, it, it must work. And when it turns out that it doesn't work, then everything just stops. And what do you mean it doesn't work? Well, it, isn't that thing solved? Or the same goes with networking. Um, one prominent path in the Ethereum ecosystem nowadays is that we'll switch to lib peer-to-peer -peer and everything will be solved. And I'm like, okay, but um, 
are you really sure that just plugging a different framework underneath your system will immediately solve everything? Because I'm almost certain that uh, it will have its own quirks and it will have its own weaknesses that you need or somebody needs to solve. I think it's always important to keep this in mind that uh, none of problems in blockchain so to say are soft the, the world is always evolving and um yes we can we do have some certain components that we can just take off the shelf and use them but they will most probably be suboptimal so it's um it's important to to keep experimenting and to keep bringing in new knowledge from all over and to know about that yeah i mean the database example i think is a good one because that's something that all Ethereum clients suffer. Our databases just aren't really good enough. They're usually the bottleneck in a lot of things. Um, so and that's something that Parity has been looking at for a long time. And I know Geth and Turbo Geth and a bunch of other things have looked at, like, can we make a Merkle tree database that's specific to Ethereum and therefore increase um, sort of the throughput of that database? But, um, you know, if you would ask me back in my SaaS days when I was working on normal startups and it's like, oh, would you consider writing your own database? I would say, no, are you fucking insane? Of course, I'm not going to consider writing my own database. Um, but now it's like, yeah, yeah, it <laughs> seems like the reasonable approach. <laughs> yeah, I guess the database is something that even in the Go Ethereum team, we've been playing around with the idea from two plus years now that... Uh, it would be so awesome if we didn't have to rely on LevelDB, rather had our own dream database. Of course, we have absolutely no idea how to do that, but um, it, it was obvious that LevelDB is not the best choice. Yeah. People kind of tell us that, well, just hire more developers. That's one approach, but that doesn't really solve the... So we need kind of some maybe academic input to maybe some theoretical designs to on how to do it. But the problem is that we can't just outsource this to university because they don't have the experience of what is the pain point on mainnet. So it's, that's why I think it's a really, really hard problem to solve because you can somehow need to collaborate on both theory and practice. And usually no team has both. I was just going to say that as well, that uh, some of the, like the people that I see succeed in this space and do the best in this space are those people that they don't have an, an academic background, but they've sort of read a lot of papers and they will they will deep dive into stuff. So um, like like Rob is a perfect example on the parody team who has read a bunch of stuff and he's written papers and he's like participated in the academic sphere, but outside of being an academic. And then he also comes from this practical side of he's written a lot of code. Uh, so he can he can read a paper, know what's important, and then write the code about it. Uh, but it's so rare to find those people. It's it's a really hard thing to find a person that that's like comfortable reading an academic paper and then translating it into code. Yep, and just to put um, the issue is not only that it's hard to find those people. The issue is that um, at least in the Ethereum ecosystem, why would you want to be a platform developer? So dApps kind of take all the glory you can do really funny stuff for example crypto kitties it's a really awesome idea it probably effort wise it requires a lot less effort to do than for example to make an ethereum node and so it's less effort more visual 
you, people like you, ever, you can go to conferences, you can present it. Hell, you can do an ICO if you really want. So there's, it's really hard to get people to do Ethereum development where, where you essentially being a client developer is all the downsides and almost none of the upsides. That's why I've been uh, praying for this uh, sort of crypto winter for a long time where there's no economic <laughs> incentive anymore to do anything. Cause like we, we saw a long period of like all the like really good people, maybe not all, but a lot of the good people went to ICO companies because they can make you a million bucks or they can, you know, raise a bunch of money and don't really have any requirements on delivering anything. Uh, so it's sort of a no brainer, really. Um, and now that the ICO craze is dying down a little bit, we see more serious people wanting to get involved and, and uh, contributing to the space. So um, I'm hopeful that trend will continue. But there is still an incentive problem. Like, yeah, I had John Choi on this podcast a long time ago. We talked about this problem of like parity isn't incentivized in any way to work on Ethereum, not at a f- fundamental level. There are grants we can apply to, and there's various unsustainable ways to fund stuff. But um, yeah, on a fundamental level, there's no incentive really for anyone to work on this. Um, And if we had some sort of incentive built into the protocol, then maybe that would change. But that's a very tough political question. Yeah, so I guess that's, um, I would say that probably that's one of the reasons why there aren't any why, why, why there aren't 10 different Ethereum mainnet clients because it's just an insane amount of effort and um, at the end of the day it's a lot of dirty work you won't get famous for okay maybe if you manage to write another parody then you will be famous but uh, if you don't manage to really be an extremely popular client then it's just you will never get that any return on that effort and I think that as if that doesn't change then it's it's really hard to to enter now we, for example today pegasus was announced uh, i mean pegasus team announced their uh, their own client and that might be actually a viable client because uh, it's backed by a uh, by a lot of people with a lot of money but um, other than that the incentives are really really misaligned and not in favor of uh, of de- developers maintaining the platform or creating the platform and uh, i think Another thing that makes it uh, really uh, problematic to find developers is that usually, at least when Ethereum was still young in Frontier, you could fairly easily code up a new client. It wasn't super optimal, but it worked, and then you can you had a starting point. But nowadays, um, Ethereum grew so large, and it need to be so insanely performant to to even be able to synchronize the mainnet that most people will just lose interest. Or if you want to join, for example, the Parity or the Go Theorem team, then it's again very hard to contribute because all the easy stuff was mostly implemented. So whatever is not implemented are the extremely complicated things, which usually an outside new developer, I, I won't say they cannot meaningfully contribute to it, but they themselves probably won't be able to solve it singularly. Yeah, so that's for sure a big problem that we have. Even in even in hiring, um, what I see is it does typically take about three months to onboard someone onto the Ethereum code base. So that's where they're sort of, you know, they can start writing code and create their first PR within the first week. But before they're well-versed in the entire code base and can sort of really approach the tough things, it takes about three months. And that's not 
<laughs> insignificant. I would debate that maybe three months is kind of okay-ish if you have enough senior peepers to do the onboarding. So usually the problem is that uh, in those three months, somebody on the team will get unproductive. But I guess uh, one of the... Um, there's this uh, there's a slight difference between the GoEthereum team and the Parity team in that uh, you guys kind of have a l probably a lot more projects that you focus on. So Parity Ethereum is one project, but you have your... Uh, your parity signer and a few other things, which means that uh, if you bring in somebody from the outside, you can probably try to onboard it from from smaller projects going towards the core. Yeah. Whereas with Go Ethereum, we are a bit in a pickle because we don't really have these external satellite projects that um, that are easier to onboard from. Although we do have a few attempts to create a few of these, just specifically to help with onboarding. So I remember a tweet from you a while ago, I can't remember how long ago, saying that the best way to learn something is to try to break it. And uh, I love that tweet. I, I think it stuck with me. What's the best way to get into Ethereum? If someone is like, oh, I'm a Rails developer working on a web app, but Ethereum is really cool, I want to get involved. How should they start and, and how do they eventually become a core developer? Well, um, for example, if well, it depends on what you what your target is. So, if you really your goal is to become a core developer, so if you, for example, want to work on Go Ethereum itself and you're interested in networking, then I think uh, if you somehow try to, for example, map the entire Ethereum network, see where individual nodes are geographically, see maybe you, can you track those nodes. If you actually manage to do something that you shouldn't be able to do then you immediately have something that, hey, this, this shouldn't work like this, so can I fix it? And that immediately, you get some concrete goals that you, can, uh, that you can work towards. Whereas if you just jump in that, hey, I want to work on networking, give me a task, then it's, it's a lot harder because, uh, okay, but what should I give you? Do you understand the context fully? Do you know why we are doing this? So it's, it's much harder for me to direct an outside person on how to contribute rather than if they have an idea of what they think should work differently and then we can if it's indeed uh, a valid thing then we can we can actually work towards that uh, one really nice example is that uh, uh, we have a relatively new team member gary who joined us he contributed quite a lot even previously he joined us this year somewhere maybe springtime he had this um, Essentially, he was the one who rewrote the entire minor of uh, minor code in Go Ethereum. It was really nice because we had these ideas. We could debate it that okay, the miner should support these and these and these features. We had some help from uh, Peter Pratcher, who gave us a pointers of how they would like to use it. And then it was really easy because we had a very concrete thing that we want to achieve this. And then it was easy to onboard Gary, and it was easy to, to merge the PRs, review the PRs, everything was easy. So if, if you know what you want to do, then it's easy. But I, I think this, is, this uh, is relevant for any software project. You kind of got to know why do you want to do it, what do you want to do? Because then, then you, you can always evaluate that. Is it a good approach or bad approach? Is it, if you, for example, want to de uh, design a new synchronization algorithm, if you know what the bottlenecks in the previous one are and you know what properties you need, then you can immediately evaluate, evaluate whether an idea is meaningful or not. And anyone can evaluate it. So it's not a, not a flame war whether warp sync or fast sync is better. Rather, it's 
it's obviously that according to these metrics, both suck. And <laughs> do we need a new one? Is there any other advice that you would give anyone in this space or interested in joining this space? Well, the, my question is, what do you mean by this space? By this space, do you mean client developer space or do you, or more generally the blockchain space? More generally the blockchain space. Well, my advice would be that uh, you should really understand what you're getting into before getting into it. So I had a lot of friends who obviously during the last year's blockchain hype were crazed. Everybody was jumped Everyone jumped in. They didn't really understand what's going on here. I had weird phone phone calls during the middle of the night that, hey, what's happening? What 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 just happened? I'm like, I don't know, I don't care. So it's um if you don't know what's what the system is, how the system works, what's what the individual pieces of 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 the entire system, of the entire ecosystem are, then it's uh, you're just wandering around chaotically and eventually you're just going to get frustrated and leave because it's just you don't get it so i think um for anyone wanting to join i think my my single suggestion would be to read it and only consider being part of it if you actually understand what you want to be part of and if you if you still want to be part of it after you understood it then the ecosystem is really brilliant it's really vibrant just make sure you understand sort of work your way up from a first principles basis i guess understand like don't build a dap without understanding how the underlying protocol works yeah kind of and um i know that there's this currently there's this big fomo around blockchains and everybody wants to enter anyone anyone wants to run their own dap or their own uh, ico but um blockchains aren't really going anywhere and if you, somebody spends an extra two months reading up on stuff everybody will be still there and if they have a good idea then Nobody will beat them to that good idea in that two months. Whereas if they do spend the two months, maybe they will realize that a completely alternative approach might be a lot better and actually might work. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me here. (laughs) And to our listeners, uh, thanks for listening. (laughs) 